0: Welcome to The Paleo View. I'm Stacey Toth, bestselling author and co-creator of PaleoParents.com, where we focus on real life
1: solutions for families seeking help. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times bestselling author and creator of ThePaleoMom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics.
0: I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd.
1: Your throat sounds better.
0: I am feeling – well, not that I was really feeling bad, but um, – Just froggy. Yeah. Fleetwood Mac has left the building. <laughs>
1: <laughs> How are you? Um, I, I, I am enjoying a very tenuous um, connection with uh, sanity, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> so it's – you know, it's the book deadlines – with the normal hustle and bustle of the season, um, my youngest daughter is just getting over strep throat, and um, and so it's it's always the like I feel like I've got everything under control until the little wrench, right? And the wrench was like all of a sudden having my daughter home from school for a couple of days, and then trying to get through my to do list that I normally sort of count on the kid free time to do with a kid who needs, you know, attention and caregiving. <laughs> so so uh you know she's she's on the mend now. She went back to school today and it's I'm I'm catching up, but it's it's just been um it's just been a few days of um a little bit just barely barely hanging in there. But can I tell you something? Uh yeah. So we bought that's the history we bought a fake christmas tree the first year that my husband and i got married because we lived in a high-rise apartment and we weren't allowed real trees and we squeezed every possible extra year out of that tree that we could get about four years ago because the lights were all it was one of those pre-lit ones lights were all dying we spent three hours three of us um clipping off the little plastic things, holding the lights onto it to take the lights off. And then we would add just regular like Christmas tree lights to it. That's commitment. Oh no. And then last year somebody had fallen into it. And I, I mean, I, I'm not, I can't actually remember if it was me, but somebody fell into the tree. You'd think if it was me, I would remember it, but it may clearly have blocked that out of my memory, but it had like bent the metal branches and broken the hinges. So there was just like this big dent in the tree. So last year it was it was a pretty sad looking fake tree. So this year I told my husband like, "Look, let's let's get a real tree. I had real trees all growing up. Let's get a real tree." And, you know, he has never had a real tree. So I just said, "Look, if you if it's horrible, if all we're doing is cleaning up cat vomited, you know, p- pine needles for for weeks on end, um because cleaning up regular pine needles is not a big deal, but the cat vomited ones is clearly a problem. You know, then we don't have to do it again, but, like, let's do it this one year. And we had planned on actually going to a farm and chopping one down, and then when our daughter got strep, we're like, and we're going to keep this simple <laughs> and go to Home Depot. But it is the nicest. Like, I am so enjoying the slight, you know, asymmetries, The you know, just the look and the smell of a real tree. And so far, the cat thinks that the presents are the thing you eat, not the tree. So that's <laughs> clearly an improvement. So I thought, given that you guys have this wonderful tradition of going and chopping down your tree every year, I kind of thought you would like to know that we've we've joined the land of the real tree. Of
0: <laughs> the live trees. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, it's totally a thing, and I almost did the exact opposite. I was at a craft store earlier um, in the season, and I had, like, a 60% off coupon for, you know, like, a Black Friday thing or whatever, and I called Matt, and I showed him a picture of a tree that looked like it had fake snow on it, and it was pre-lit, and it was all pretty, and I was like, should I get this? (laughs) Uh, Because he is, he has, like, a pine allergy, and... That's not a
1: convenient...
0: No. So every time we get a tree, he's got to like wear long sleeves and gloves and it's, you know, like it's a thing. It doesn't bother him when it's
1: in the air, but if it touches him, like it gives him a rash. So... Is it, is it like evergreen? Because I know like the tree we got, I call it a pine tree, but it was actually like a Fraser fir tree. Does it, is it like, act, does it matter if you get like a different kind of evergreen? Because there's quite a few different kinds depending on regionally where yes. people live it's, it's just all of them
0: he is actually less sensitive to pine than he is fir. so last year we got a pine based tree so he was less sensitive to it mm-hmm. um but all the needles fell off i don't know if you remember the drama I do of last remember. year we didn't even have a tree on the holiday so um this year we went back to our usual fur (laughs) um which you know we just got him gloves and long sleeves and he washes his hands and arms after and it's like it's a thing he knows that the day that we get the tree and the day that we move the tree out of the house like his arms are going to be rashy but it goes away and um anyway so I called him from the craft store and I was like should I get this fake tree? I know that you have this allergy and it's pretty and it's on sale. Like, you know, we can just do this and not worry about cutting down a tree this year. Because also last year not having a tree and having that whole thing happen was kind of – um disheartening to say the least so he was like no this is our family tradition i love that you have this tradition like i created this tradition and we've done this every year with all the boys like absolutely not we're not getting a fake tree and i'm like okay i feel less guilty about it (laughs) yeah
1: now we've we've managed to anger all of the people who are either like pro live trees or pro fake trees out there because it's a divisive it's a divisive topic so, we've managed to just alienate, I'm thinking like five out of our six listeners. I don't think we did anything to alienate <laughs> anybody. I don't think
0: we said one was better than the other. Um, oh. And there are some people that don't celebrate the holiday or, you know, that do or don't get trees and like to each their own. I think that's what this podcast is all about, right? Like, do what works
1: for you. Um, yes. What's the scientific foundation from which to educate your choices? <laughs> just sort of throw that one in there a little bit, a little bit. Um, I remember um, being in a panel with Mark Sisson and him answering a question with do what works for you. But the question was, you know, such that there was like really clearly a scientifically founded answer. And, um, and I felt like, you know, sometimes it's sort of easy to say – this is a total tangent – but sometimes it's easy to say, you know, do what works for you by way of uh, avoiding controversy or, consp- uh, you know, tackling conspiracy theory or, you know, getting into some of these topics where people are, you know, very, very passionate one way or the other. And I think it's always important to sort of say, you know, there is there is some scientific guidance And then there's individual experimentation. So kind of combining those two ideas, um, you know, the uh, do what feels right to you. I mean, pizza feels great to me. I mean, it doesn't. No, it doesn't actually feel great. (laughs) It doesn't. (laughs) But uh, but yeah, I sort of feel like feel like uh, ever since I heard him say that, I was like, oh, I am now every time, every time the answer is, you know, do, do what works for you. I want to add this little caveat, and it's just going to be my mission now for the next decade uh, with the Scientific Foundation to educate how you go about discovering what works for you. Um, I wonder if we'll get into that a little bit in today's topic. You'd think I almost said that on purpose. <laughs> I mean, you are the queen of the segue. Just, just saying. Just saying. If the segues were up to me on this show – um, they would be awkward, and there would be like entire like blooper reels of awkward segues. <laughs> it would be a thing. It would be like, and Sarah's awkward segue. You know, it's it's. I think um, we might need to make that a thing just for entertainment <laughs> Sarah's <purposes>. awkward segue. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, on the battlefield, no, it would be yeah. Um, no, it's it's a good it's a good thing that that job's not on my plate. Um speaking of plates, see, it's not good. (laughs) It's really not good. I'm not good at this. Um, But so we've got a really interesting question. And we've had variations of this question come up before. And we've never really talked about it on the podcast before. Um, But one of the reasons why I wanted to tackle this question today is first of all, it's from a 14 year old girl. And I love the thought that um this person is is putting into food um but i think there's sort of two things to this question so i i kind of want to tackle the scientific aspect of what she's actually asking but i feel like there's this other aspect to her question which ties into um perfectionism which i i felt is is always sort of a good thing to touch on this time of year as we're Hitting uh, New Year's resolutions, and especially when we're talking about teens, which are at such a vulnerable age in terms of their relationship with food. So I, I feel like there's a there's a lot of a lot of good stuff here. Um, and Carolyn's question is about food combining. Have you ever heard? You you heard sort of about food combining, so only from a very notional perspective
0: and um, conversation context, or from a, like a raw v- vegan perspective. Because I think to me, if you said that it's this concept of um, that I've heard associated with that community and eaten cer- certain certain types of foods, not with others, um, and I think the only other person that i've heard talk about it too would have been on this podcast um where we had uh goodness i'm not going to be able to remember their names off the top of my head rich food poor food the awesome couple um mira and jason yes yes um and when she talked about Just being aware, more less food combining and more being aware of kind of a synergistic perspective and also some foods neutralizing others. For example, if she eats spinach, she says she doesn't consider any of the other nutrients that she's eating because it was um, blocking oxidation or... I don't know. Those kinds of things just make my head spin a little bit too much. So I'm looking yeah, forward to I you think, breaking down I the think science. I think it's
1: one of those topics in which um, there's a tremendous amount of misinformation out there. Um, and what the Coltons were really talking about was anti-nutrients. And, um, and I think there's – so if there is oxalic acid, which is what's in spinach um, – <laughs> That's totally what I said. So, yeah, it's close, (laughs) very, very close. So um, oxalates and phytates are similar in the sense that they bind with minerals. And once they've bound with that mineral, it's harder for our bodies to absorb that mineral. And with both um, phytates and oxalates, a healthy gut microbiome can actually liberate a lot of those minerals for us. So they help us uh, process um, the oxalic acid and the phytic acid, and they liberate the minerals for us with a cap. Like there's only so much that a healthy gut microbiome can um, can can help us out with. Um, but there's this um, misunderstanding with both of these anti nutrients that um, if you have a lot of phytates in a food, if you have a lot of oxalates in a food, that you can't absorb any of the minerals from that food. Um, there's not or that you can't absorb any of the minerals from your meal. So there's this there's a big difference between free oxalic acid or free phytic acid in a food versus oxalates and phytates. So the oxalates and phytates are already bound to a mineral. Oxalic acid and phytic acid are not bound and there's very very little oxalic acid or phytic acid in Paleo foods. So what's in that food is already bound to a mineral and it can't then bind to other things. So if you're eating spinach and that spinach is bound up with the iron in the spinach, it's not going to – it can't then just bind up the iron in your steak as well. So it, it, can't, it can only bind to one, like one molecule of oxalic acid to one molecule of, of iron. Um, so it's not like it's, it's rendering the other nutrients in your meal – Unabsorbable or less absorbable, it does make it a little bit harder to absorb some of the minerals in that particular vegetable. And the good thing is, typically, vegetables have more minerals than are just what's bound up with oxalic acid or or phytic acid. So it's a bit of a like both of those. It's one of those myths that kind of. Permeates every once in a while that you know if that food has tons of oxalic acid or tons of phytic acid, it's basically a nutritional void food because it can't absorb any of the minerals from it. And you know don't don't put spinach in your smoothies because you won't be able to absorb any of that nutrition. And it's it's sort of a, a it comes from a misunderstanding of the difference between the acid and the salt. So the salt is when it's bound, when the acid is bound to a mineral, um, and then how our bodies are able to liberate. The the mineral from the salt, Um, and that is chiefly done through the actions of bacteria in our in our guts. So it's um, so that's that's sort of an anti nutrient question. Um, Caroline is asking about what you touched on more sort of um, uh, ideas that come out of the vegan community. I've also seen it in some uh, fad weight loss diets with the idea of um, combining oh, yeah. Yeah. Right, combining certain foods together because they'll be easier to digest and they'll do some you know it's d- depending on the community is coming from there's other you know things oh it might do some good things for your fat burning or it might do some good things for your insulin or w- whatever it is. Um, and then very commonly within this you know how you're gonna combine you know you're never gonna eat, Steak and blueberries together because you know the world explodes or something, but um, this idea of eating fruit by itself, um, and then you, you know the this special magic combination of when you eat other things and sort of spreading out different types of food throughout the day. Um, so why don't I actually read Caroline's question, and then we can kind of get into that nitty nitty gritty. Uh, food combining. I think I, um, there, there's just there's, – there's so many different ways to tackle this. <laughs> so Caroline asks – What do you think about properly combined meals, meaning no more than one concentrated food per meal, which is anything other than fruit or vegetable, and only eating fruit on an empty stomach and raw? And what about egg yolks? Uh, I've heard that egg yolks should only be eaten raw and that scrambling was the worst way to have them, that it would damage their cholesterol.
0: (laughs) Okay, so before you get into the whole... Spiel just to give your your vocal cords a break, so you can sip your tea. Uh I just did. Uh, that was a like little nudge, nudge to the blooper section as well.
1: Um, it was I mean, a callback ahead. It's a call ahead. People will actually hear. <laughs> it's great.
0: Yeah. Anyway, um, so I think what's what's interesting to me is this. Um, idea that we've touched on in a couple of podcasts that I think you can bring full circle with the scientific discussion today and we've had questions like the uh type of cooking methods or does microwaving broth kill the nutrients and in this case does scrambling an egg yolk ruin the cholesterol and i think that it's um <clears throat> It's an unfortunate facet that we have disclosed before that there are people with access to the internet who can say anything they want. And so I would just encourage everybody, not just what Sarah's going to say, but in anything that you read to really look at the source of information. Um, I know for me personally that I got a lot of questions and pushback about um, the health properties affecting people's blood and pork when we were writing Beyond Bacon because there was one paper that was referenced over and over and over again in the food communities that people just assumed uh, to be um, – correct and valid. And when I looked into it, you know, I found that that wasn't the case and was able to debunk it myself. Now, of course, I did reach out to you, Sarah, and we got, you know, a little more info about it. But I think that that's, you know, just keep that in mind as you hear certain things like this. I mean, um, a runny egg yolk is delicious, but just like any protein, Um, humans have consumed it raw and we've had fire for a really long time we've cooked our meat for a really long time so you know to me I hear something like that and I'm like, just like a red flag goes off like well wait a minute like that just logistically doesn't make sense to me so um, and then I look into things so I would just encourage people to do that and I'm sure we'll put um, links to your sources or anything like that in the show notes for people
1: yeah, so I, I think there's there's a lot of different um, a lot of different places to nerd out here, and um, I'll try to cover at least the major ones as efficiently as possible. Um, I want to talk a little bit about digestion and um, some of the hormones that control digestion and control hunger signaling and how they respond to different types of food, because I think that's at the heart of uh, all of the various versions of food combining. And when you actually understand how the digestive system works, it becomes really obvious really quickly that a complete meal is the best way to go. And a complete meal involves some animal protein, some vegetables, and some natural fats that are either, you know, those vegetables or meat are cooked in or the natural fats that are occurring in those vegetables and that meat. And, uh, and fruit, you know, fruit can absolutely fit into, to a complete meal as can nuts and seeds and eggs. Um, and so, um, so let's sort of take a step back and talk a little bit about digestion. Digestion starts in the mouth. So, Uh, chewing is uh, considered a mechanical form of digestion we're breaking food up into smaller smaller pieces Um, and then we also are mixing it in the mouth um, with saliva which includes um, like enzymes like salivary amylase so enzymes are starting to break down starches so that's a chemical form of digestion and so really our entire digestive process is sort of a mix of mechanical breaking things up into smaller and smaller pieces and chemical and chemical is you know the basically the the action of of enzymes but also things like stomach acid that are actually helping to break food apart and we have to break food down into um, really molecules and quite small molecules. So nutrients are quite small molecules. And the reason we have to do that is because of the way the gut barrier is designed. Um, Small molecules are able to get across and into the blood and bigger molecules and things like bacteria have a much harder time getting across a healthy gut barrier. So once the food is swallowed, it goes to the stomach. It mixes with acid and some other Enzymes, um, So enzymes, chiefly, that break down protein in the stomach. And then the contents of the stomach are released into the small intestine. Um, when it's released into the small intestine, those contents are is called chyme, which I think is a very nice way to say mushed up food mixed with stomach acid. Um, and it's the acidity of that chyme that signals to the pancreas and liver through a couple of hormones uh, it signals to the pancreas to release pancreatic enzymes, um, and these will help digest um, fats, proteins, and uh, sugars and starches. Um, and it also signals to the gallbladder to release bile, and bile helps with fat digestion. So, so bile helps break down the fat so that the fat-digesting enzymes for the from the pancreas can actually do their work. Um, there's three sections of the small intestine. The first one's called the duodenum, then the jejunum, then the ileum. Uh, then food travels to the colon. In the colon, that's where the majority of our gut bacteria are. A lot of fermentation. So the entire way down the small intestine, we're absorbing nutrients and a little bit of water. Um, and then by the time we're getting to the colon, most of the absorption there is some electrolytes and water, and then what is not digestible, and as well as you know bacteria that have gone through their happy little lives inside our digestive tract form stool. So there's some really important hormones that are part of this signaling. And what they the – hunger hormones tend to do a couple of different things. They tend to control some aspect of digestion, and they also signal to the brain whether or not we're hungry, whether or not we're fed. Some hunger hormones um, will give information about um, – our energy status, so how much stored energy we have. So, you know, people might have heard of a That's that's a, a hunger hormone that also sort of lets the body know, or lets the brain know how much stored energy we have. Uh, leptin sort of does the same thing, and so does insulin in many ways, right? They they signal to the brain um, whether or not we've eaten, but also whether or not we have an adequate store of energy when, when all of these signals are working properly. So um, I want to kind of go over five chief hunger hormones that have really important roles in digestion. Um, Cholecystokinin is increased when we, uh, eat fats predominantly. It's it's secreted by cells in the duodenum, so the first section of the small intestine, and it tells the brain that we're, we're eating. It's actually the fastest hunger-suppressing signal to the brain after we've eaten a meal. And it's why eating fats with a meal is so important for satiety um, and why you can, you can show in a variety of studies that having... Um, you know, between sort of 10 to 40% fat content in a meal is a much more satiating meal than uh, a low fat meal, which is typically considered under 10% calories from fat. Um, It also slows down um, digestion um, so that it it basically slows down the movement so that the body actually, these enzymes have time to work. And it is responsible for signaling to the pancreas to Release digestive enzymes and to the gallbladder to release bile, and it's. I think that's really. There's an important nuance there. It's increased by detecting fat, and yet it's signaling both bile and pancreatic enzymes to be released. And pancreatic enzymes break down protein, fat, and carbs. And there can be problems if you release especially enzymes that break down protein and don't provide them protein to break down because then the closest protein for them to work on is actually the tissues of the gastrointestinal tract. And that's why, um, you know, milk being high in digestive enzyme inhibitors, for example, is a problem. It's exactly through that mechanism. Um, Oxintamodulin, which is a fun one to say five times fast, um, is released by the stomach and it is increased when it detects protein and carbohydrates, and it again signals to the brain that, hey, look, we're, we've we've eaten something, we're we're you know we're gonna be good, um, and it delays gastric emptying. So again, it sort of slows things down, which enhances digestion. It gives um, the digestive tract more time; it gives those enzymes more time to break things down, and more opportunity for nutrients to cross into the body. Uh, peptide YY um, is released by the next two segments of the small intestine, so the jejunum and the ileum, as well as the colon, in response to protein. Um, and it's it's sort of a late signal. It actually starts to it signals back to the gallbladder and the pancreas to like, okay, you guys can stop now. Like, you, you're you're done your job. The food's already all the way down here. So you've you've added enough stuff to it. So so we're good now. Um, and then it also increases some of the nutrient absorption that's happening in the colon, like water and electrolyte um, absorption. Glucagon-like peptide 1 is secreted by the ileum, so the last part of the colon. Um, and it's, it's actually a, a fairly fast satiety signal. Um, so it's also telling the brain, I'm I'm good it's actually increased in response to carbohydrates, fat and protein. And again, it sort of slows things down and it's basically like last last chance for us to absorb nutrients is really what it it's job is. Um, and then ghrelin, ghrelin is really interesting. It's it's actually the opposite of those other horm- hormones. So when ghrelin is high, that actually tells our body it's we're hungry. So ghrelin is secreted in bigger and bigger amounts by the cells that line the stomach when the stomach is empty. Um and it's telling the brain that we're we're hungry. Um it's actually really considered to be the opposite of leptin. So leptin I, I didn't mention because it's its role is not is more in signaling purely signaling hunger and energy status as opposed to um having a role in digestion. Ghrelin um is uh, increases the hunger we are, and then as soon as we eat, it drops. And what's fascinating to me is the, the macronutrients that signal the biggest drop in ghrelin are carbohydrates, but really just glucose. So, fructose has uh, no effect on ghrelin, um, and glucose is the primary sugar in starches, protein, and fiber. Um, and in fact, fiber is probably the biggest suppressor of ghrelin, which is why eating a high fiber meal. Is satiating. So you can kind of see we've got all of these hormones that are responding to different macronutrients um, and they're controlling different aspects of digestion. And when you look at that, what that actually tells us is that we really need to eat all of those things, protein, carbs, fat, fiber, in order to to make digestion the most efficient and to regulate these hormones in the best way possible. So when you look at how our digestive system is is built, we're really built to be optimized for complete meals. There is nothing in that system that says, oh, and by the way, fruit's going to mess this up. Or, oh, and by the way, Uh, fruit is, you know, we've got the special system just for fruit that we want to turn on. That's why you need to fruit by itself. Um, And when you even take a step farther back and look at some of the really interesting research linking red meat consumption to cancer, those mechanisms fall apart as soon as there's um, uh, chlorophyll, which we get predominantly from vegetables, but also from some fruit, and um, and as soon as you're talking about a high vegetable um, – high fruit and vegetable intake diet. So there's a lot of reasons why we actually are – would do better to do – more varied combinations so you know food combining in the sense of lots of different vegetables and some fruit and a handful of nuts and seeds and a little bit of protein and really think about meals that contain a lot of different types of foods a lot of different types of nutrients and hit carbs protein fat and um, fiber all all together Um, so you know my standard hashtag three quarters veggies plate with a quarter animal protein I seem to think that
0: we both have hashtags about high <laughs> vegetables mm-hmm. um yeah I I just think that for me um I think it was Liz Wolf that I may have first heard talk about this in a way that really made sense to me um and her concept of um synergistically uh, Using food, I think um, maybe Chris John was on uh, the Balanced Bites podcast, and it w- it was like a light bulb for me went off when you know you eat a salad, for example. Um, those are fat soluble vitamins, and what that means is that you know for me, my whole life I was putting if I was eating a salad, I was putting fat free dressing on it. Right. Then my body wasn't getting those nutrients because it needed fat to absorb it. And there are so many other foods that work in harmony with one another um, that you know when you add butter to a dish when you 're cooking the food you 're actually helping nutrients be absorbed and so for me it 's like the way that humans have come to cook food and i 'm talking about real food in the and the real process that we have not something you buy in a box in the store actually makes a lot of sense for the way that you need to eat in order to optimize your nutrient consumption and um, your health in general. So um, I think I've talked endlessly on the podcast about how like the lazy approaches or the intuitive approach, um, if you want to be more uh, PC about it, is often what ends up being correct because we as humans have gotten to where we are based on you know what we've been doing for a very long time, and we're at the top of the food chain for a reason um so to me, it just makes so much sense, and I think it's it's good to put it in context for people in terms of digestion as well because there are so many different kinds of amino acids. And I remember early on um, in my paleo days when it was like, eat more omega 3. And then I would read that chia seeds were high in omega 3. And then I would read somewhere else that that wasn't the right kind of omega 3. And I was like, what? What's happening? My brain's exploding. <laughs> um, but yeah. now it's to a point where I think, you know, we're, we're kind of breaking it down and trying to help people understand why all of that is. And, and you know, to really just have it be the simple solution that we've always said, which is, you know, when you focus on eating real foods with a, you know, diversity of, you know, colors and textures and um, that kind of stuff alongside the, you know, proteins and other foods that you're eating, your body is able to process that as a whole meal and that's what it wants to do. It, it doesn't want to be fed only one thing for a very long time or by itself and then, be introduced to something else. And I personally with a very sensitive digestion can be the first one to tell you (laughs) that when I eat foods, um, certain foods by themselves and not with other foods, like my body will immediately tell me, (laughs) don't do that. Everybody out. Right. So I'm like, I think I'm more sensitive to it than other people because my body has a unique mechanism, not having had a gallbladder and and having, you know, long-term digestive, uh, issues that it. It puts up a flare really quick, like "Hey guys, that didn't work. Try again tomorrow." Um, so yeah,
1: <laughs> this is the try again tomorrow. Like, yeah,
0: because yeah. <laughs> you don't get um, you don't get another chance. It's usually breakfast that I mess up. Let's be real, and usually that's it's like tomorrow. Try again tomorrow. <laughs> well, yeah, the bre- breakfast is a challenge. Well, especially because I, I mean, I don't want to rehash what we've said a million times, but without having a place to store bile. Um, I, my body has gone a really long time without eating while I sleep. And you, Sarah, you wake up in the morning and your body
1: has the storage of bile in it, do. Can, and you can drink your butter coffee. I can have, yep. I can have uh pure Indian foods, coffee plus plus and yep. some collagen in my coffee and my and c- coffee by itself actually stimulates the secretion of, of bile from the gallbladder. Um, but if you don't have a gallbladder, doesn't it doesn't
0: doesn't do that (laughs) there's no stomach acid waiting for you and coffee plus butter on the system and your body's like whoa not
1: so much just And, and my body on the other hand is like yes it's okay to be awake now. <laughs> it's different. It's, a different. it's a different thing.
0: This is kind of an inside joke for everybody because whenever I go to Sarah's house and she offers me coffee with butter in it in the morning, I give her that look like, really? Do we have to have this conversation again? Hey, yeah. And I, she gives I, me the look like, oh, I'm so sad for you. <laughs>
1: I know. Well, and I think it's because I'm always offering you the coffee as I'm making mine. So it's not like I'm fully awake yet. So right, I'm just right. in the, I know that I need this. So clearly everybody else in the room needs this. (laughs) So it's just that's that's there's really no more complex thoughts at that time of morning than that. Um, Let's talk about the other the egg part of this question, Um, because it's another sort of misconception out there that cooking a food Destroys it, right? That cook microwaving of food kills the enzymes in that food. Um, you know, so first of all, um, microwaving does not destroy food in. Any way differently than heating a food does. So the molecular changes that are happening when you microwave a food are the same molecular changes that are happening when you cook a food with other methods. And there's actually a collection of papers showing that microwaving uh, food because you tend to use less water um, can actually preserve some of the vitamins and minerals that would normally be leached into the water if you were to, you know, steam vegetables on the stovetop, for example. Um, And I've got a, you know, very Thorough, sciencey, all the the scientific references post on my website if you're concerned about microwaves um, to, to go read. Um, but there's this idea that sort of expands beyond that is that you know there's something inherent to raw food that is um, advantageous to us. Um, and while it's true that some nutrients can be degraded by cooking. there's actually other nutrients that can be formed by cooking and cooking helps to start the digestive process for us. I mean, cooking cooking in many ways is sort of pre-digesting. Fermenting is sort of very similar in that that same sense. Um, You know, we as a species started controlling fire about one and a half million years ago. And by 800,000 years ago, we were for sure cooking the majority of our food. And evolutionary biologists believe that Cooking was uh, – learning how to cook our food was the thing that made us human because we were suddenly able to access so much more energy from that food. So when food is cooked, we can actually digest it more easily and we can absorb more nutrients from it. Um, and that gave us this huge evolutionary advantage that allows us to grow these big brains and you know continue our refinement of tools. We were using tools before that um, – but that that was you know one of the major turning points in, in human evolution was cooking food, and it really comes down to the fact that you know if you think of eggs as you know the, the example that, that Caroline asked, um, you know when you cook protein, the protein starts to unfold and unravel, and that's something that our digestive enzymes have to do in order to break that protein up into the individual amino acids and it's individual amino acids that have to cross the gut barrier. So anything that we can do to a food that starts unraveling or starts breaking things down beforehand typically is beneficial um, with the exception of when you start breaking, you know, vitamin C molecules down, our body can't reform the vitamin C molecules. Um, And vitamin C is one of the most sensitive, nutrients to cooking so it's one of the ones that's degraded the most and it's typically degraded about 10 percent so if you steam broccoli you're going to lose about 10 percent of the broccoli or 10 percent of the vitamin c the, the broccoli's still there it's just the vitamin c that we're <laughs> um and so but on the other side of it um there's actually some nutrients that can be formed um, in cooking, especially some really interesting phytochemical antioxidants that can be formed in cooking vegetables. So um, when you look at, at that information, what it tells us is that your protein really is best cooked all the time. Um, fats can... Be damaged by high heat cooking, so they can oxidize, and that's not good for us to eat oxidized fats because that can be inflammatory. And cholesterol is a fat molecule, um, but it that typically happens at high heat cooking, and it typically happens with isolated fat. So there's uh, a group of studies that were done actually in flaxseed, showing that uh, flax oil has a very very low smoke point; it's a very very fragile fat, but that the fats, when you just heat flax seeds themselves, those fats are very, very stable. So the fat is much less easy to oxidize when it's part of the matrix of the whole food compared to once it's isolated from the food. So we really think about damaged fats more in the context of you know, putting um, olive oil into too hot of a pan before we saute some vegetables um, or cooking with fats that are extracted using high pressure and high heat processes. It's one of the reasons why things like canola oil and soybean oil and corn oil aren't considered part of paleo because those oils, when we buy them at the grocery store, they're already damaged from the manufacturing. Um, But when it comes to cooking, you know, uh, some eggs, or a piece of salmon, or or a steak, um, you know those those fats when they're still part of the whole food are, are much 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 more stable, and we we generally don't need to worry about it as long as we're not, um, you know, cooking them by <laughs> I don't know I don't try to think of something like super fast like blowtorch or you know <laughs> really really high heat, um, but even then you know if you think about you know barbecuing. Um, Yeah,
0: I was going to say, like, barbecuing or even broiling, I think people forget about. Like, I've seen people coat vegetables in flax oil and roast them, but then, like, put on the broiler at the end to caramelize them, and that always kind of gives me, like, nails on a chalkboard.
1: So – okay let's let's talk about some of the carcinogens that are formed by high heat cooking so um and there are some right There are some that are formed um either like when grease lands on coals, there can be some carcinogens in the smoke. Um, and there can also be some antinutrients and some some carcinogens formed, like that char, right? Like the, the browning is antinutrients; they're not, they're not carcinogens. The char is is carcinogens, and it's so tasty. They're the tastiest carcinogens out there. Um, there's a lot of science to to show that as soon as we're eating vegetables with that meal, um, that we're talking about, you know, something that's pretty like benign. Um, so like, I wouldn't suggest eating charred steak every single day by itself. Um, but barbecuing once in a while, um, you know, that like, if you start looking at, um, something like advanced glycation end products, which are produced in high temperature cooking, um, and people get really worked up about advanced glycation end products because they are oxidizers, right? So they cause oxidative damage and that, Propels aging and inflammation and all these bad, horrible things. Um, But the dominant source of advanced glycation end products is um, uh, endogenous rather than exogenous. So it means our bodies make them rather than we consume them, and our bodies make them in response to high sugar content. So the better thing that we can do is just, you know, eat a Whole Foods diet and avoid excess sugars. Um, and then when you reduce that endogenous production of advanced glycation end products, suddenly barbecuing is a very small contribution. And when you start talking about all of the cancer protective effects from a high vegetable diet, as long as we're having that barbecued steak with a salad, you know, we should be in a good zone. Um, might be a little bit different for somebody who knows they have genetic risk factors for cancer, um, but for for everyone else, you know, there's there's... As long as the vegetables are in the mix, um, the whole the whole topic becomes sort of moot. So, um, so cooking cooking good, uh, burning things not as awesome. Um, oil that's smoking should be thrown out. Um, but you know, really, it, it comes back to. Hashtag more vegetables than a vegetarian and hashtag three-quarters veggies are, are two of our, our, our hashtags um, and really like back to that complete meal and, and the benefits of that complete meal go beyond digestion but also go to um, the synergy, right? That's what it is. It's the synergy of – having all of these antioxidant phytochemicals and you know vitamins and minerals and the nutrients that our immune system needs to work properly because our immune system one of its jobs is to be on cancer patrol um, and there's this idea that um, you know I that we all develop cancer six times in our lives um, you know that's probably not actually true but the idea comes from the idea that the accident of cancer happens, and it's our immune systems that are part, part of their job, part of what they're designed to do is detect those cells that um, transformed into to cancer cells and kill them. And that what's a, one of the things that's happening in cancer is a breakdown of the immune system. And ironically enough, a breakdown in the immune system in almost exactly the opposite way that the immune system breaks down in autoimmune disease. But, um, but it really just – you know the, the best thing we can do to protect ourselves against cancer is, a make sure our vitamin D is in a good level, um, reduce stress, get enough sleep, and eat tons of vegetables.
0: It's funny; I feel like I might have mentioned that once or twice before.
1: Eat, uh, so eat some vegetables. Did I say that yet? <laughs> this podcast was like eight? So, so, I, so this is my favorite thing. I've I've actually been. You know, going back into the research and really making sure that my information is as up-to-date as possible for writing paleo principles. And what's been really neat for me, I'm actually working on the vegetable chapter now. So, you know, there's that. That's maybe why a lot of this information is fresh in my head. Um, But uh, science is now basically showing that we should be looking at eight servings of vegetables a day as a minimum. (laughs) And it's to me, it's, it's fascinating because in the sort of the, the oldie-timey days of five years ago, um, you would look at scientific studies and they would, <laughs> they would look at – they would break people up into people who had zero servings of vegetables a day, one or two servings of vegetables a day, three or four servings of vegetables a day, or five or more. And they, I think they basically had such a hard time finding people for their studies that ate more than five servings of vegetables a day that they just lumped five together and seven together and 12 together. Like, it's just like, and here's our small little group of five or more. And they'd always say like, yeah, five or more is definitely the best. And it became, right, there's these like five a day infographics all over the place. That's become one of those sort of uh, various, you know, food recommendation campaigns, eat your five a day. Um, And when you actually look at the more recent data where they've actually broken up that five plus group into smaller groups, Um, now they go eight plus and (laughs) eight plus is the best. So, so, um, you know, there really doesn't seem to be a cap. Um, there doesn't seem to be a, um, you know, that's too many vegetables and that causes a problem. Um, the only place that that would happen is if you were only eating vegetables and not getting nutrients from, from animal foods that are also essential. But, um, but yeah, so so you know, what the science now says is eight a day as a minimum. Um, and I feel like, you know, I, I personally aim for 14 a day, um, but I think that eight a day is probably a lot more achievable for, for most people.
0: I, uh, I can tell you that if you've got my problems that vegetables a day will also help with some of your other issues,
1: because fiber helps things. It's just. Fiber is a magic wonder for your digestive tract. It really is. It is and... for, for for the whole. I mean, when you consider that that is the food that we feed our gut bacteria pets, <laughs> and uh, that we need a few trillion of those guys to be healthy, and the right kinds of them in order for us to be healthy. Um, I actually think that classifying fiber as a non-essential nutrient is a mistake. Because what you're saying is, uh, well, you won't die if you don't eat it, but you can't be healthy without it because of how tied our health is to the gut microbiome. Um, and um, and because of, you know, there's hormones, some really important hormones that are affected by fiber. If you're not getting it, you're not regulating insulin or leptin or ghrelin and, um and so, yeah, I think you know it's one of those things you you say non essential nutrient people feel like they can just go ah eh, then eh, I don't need it oh we need a lot like fifty grams a day.
0: Well, and I think it's also one of those things where um, people have come to rely on fiber in some of our more processed foods and um when you cut out those processed foods you need to mindfully add it back to your diet and we've talked about this concept before if paleo isn't just what you take off your food off your plate it's also what you put back on your plate and so i find that you know if you replace a lot of the processed foods with vegetables you take care of a lot of the stuff that you need because especially if you're putting a healthy fat and salt and pepper on those vegetables then you're or not even pepper if you're AIP but you know like a good Salt and a good fat on vegetables, and you're set on a lot of the things that the processed foods have been adding for you. So, you know, there's a lot of minerals and the fiber and all the vitamins that are in vegetables, like all that stuff you need, um, and you're not going to be getting it from processed foods. And I know it's one of those like common arguments that you see against paleo is, you know, the two things that I see most often in these obnoxious articles that come out is one, it's difficult. Um, and socially awkward. Like, okay, I can't really argue with that, but you know what? So was Weight Watchers and vegetarianism. So, just going to eliminate that one. And then the second one is, making sure that you're getting enough nutrients from the foods that you eliminate and I agree that that's something that people really need to consciously think about and I think is one of the more difficult parts of paleo is you just can't mindlessly buy things at the store anymore you have to actively think about like well when was the last time I had an orange vegetable like I should probably get some beta carotene Um, or you know whatever it is for you I just I think it's um, it's Good If you can, as you remove things from your plate, to put things onto your plate um, from a vegetable perspective, it'll take care of a lot of the stuff that you're talking about. I was raising the roof through most of that. Most of it?
1: Most of my arm
0: got tired. Okay. I was like, did I say something
1: wrong again? No, no. I literally <laughs> was like, dang, this is this is my arm's getting tired. I'm going to have to put it down. I mean, I strict pressed this morning, so – and then I did like clean and jerks in the wad, so – you know, the shoulders—the shoulders are kind of spent. Got it.
0: Well, I think we probably slayed this every which way we possibly could.
1: Uh, I think I want to end on one other short message for Carolyn, which is um, that I—I I love Carolyn that you're thinking about food and that you're actively looking for answers. You know, Stacey mentioned earlier in the podcast about really looking at the source of where you're getting your information. Um, you know, there, there are some pseudoscience websites out there that will kind of kind of mask things in, in technical language and, and try to hide it behind citations that, that don't actually mean anything, but there are also really fantastic science-based resources. Um for answers to those questions. Um, but also, you know, remember that, um, food isn't supposed to be stressful and it's not supposed to be about, um, you know, measuring and tinkering, right. There's, um, there's guidelines, but there's also a ton of flexibility. So, Um, I think that especially as we we go into New Year's resolutions when a lot of people are looking at challenges, I think it's really important to remember that um, if the – following the guidelines, if they they become so rigid that it's a stress, then that's actually starting to undermine our health again. And so it's really important to approach all of this with – you know, with educated choices, but also with balance, because if we can't keep up our good choices for the rest of our life, then it, it's not really doing us any good. So finding that balance in order to achieve sustainability is is a really key concept as we move forward and try to optimize our own diets. So much rephrasing
0: tonight. And all the nights. There
1: was a lot. I mean, we could have really just said, yeah, eat a complete meal and then that would have been the whole show and it would have been fine.
0: Well, so I'll say it because you didn't. But I think that there are um, – there are pseudo wackadoos out there
1: <laughs> who – I think yes, pray not a not a word I would normally use.
0: Right? Who kind of prey on people who are looking for answers and they come up with stuff. And whether I genuinely believe that some of them um, know that they're giving misinformation and that it will get sight hits, but I do think that some of them believe that they're helping people, just as we believe that we're helping people. But that's why it's important for everybody to really look at the source and the facts behind what they're being advised to do and you know whether that's consulting with a medical professional or reading the um, source linked articles yourself and if it links back to another uh, random blog post versus a medical article that'll tell you something so I think that um I think it's just very frustrating to be on the end of, you know, dedicating a portion of our lives to helping people and then to see that – I feel like sometimes people are being swindled and I I know that you you were being more politically correct than I am being now, but I, I just think it's so unfortunate that some of the things that people say that they've read or heard and – Or, you know, that their friend told them about through the grapevine and whether it's getting, you know, confused in translation or, you know, whatever it may be, sometimes I just scratch my head and I'm like, what in the world? Like, where would this have come from? Absolutely no, you need like a variety of foods. This is good for you. (laughs) There's a reason. So I think, um, yeah, so that there, I just, I just, I unfolded your political correctness there for you. That's all.
1: Thank you, I appreciate it.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, with that note, what would what would the show be if not for a little soapboxing and wackadoodleness?
1: ness? Um, Every show should have wackadoodles.
0: I got I got you covered. I'm totally fine to uh, bring that in somehow each time. Maybe even I use that as the bridge each each week. I mean, right? Bonus points
1: for me. Speaking of wackadoodles. <laughs> Thanks everyone for listening. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to the Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite Paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. Hello. Hello. I am ready. Okay. What are you one more time? Ready. <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> I just felt like rolling my, uh, I need a sip of my tea first. <sighs> so much better. I'm
0: so grateful that you made me a part of that experience with the, with the audible sipping noises.
1: I thought you'd enjoy that. Do you wanna, I did. Do you want to rerun? This is, this is the sequel right here. slurping with the sipping bonus
0: material right there
1: right so sometimes the sequel actually is better than the original (laughs) i mean not usually but every once in a while there's a real gem and that was that was one of them uh oxalates and phthalates uh or phytates Say that again, Matt, you're going to have to, because phthalate is not a word I want on the podcast.
0: (laughs) I'm just really looking forward (laughs) to that in the bloopers.
1: (sighs) Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s.